2: Notre Dame fans, welcome back to another edition of Irish Breakdown Podcast. It is Thursday, May sixth. My name is Brian Driscoll. I'm the publisher at IrishBreakdown.com. We're going to talk about a lot of different topics today, and uh, but I, I have to be honest with you, <clears throat> I think there's a great way for us to kick off the show. And if you're watching live, you're gonna you're gonna love this. But Jason, I think that is the perfect way to kick off today's show. Uh, so, ab- absolutely agree with you. So, here's the topics we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk first about the transfer of Dylan Gibbons, uh, who announced today that he's leaving Notre Dame. We're going to talk about why that's happening. We're going to talk about what the depth chart looks like now with him gone, and uh, how this impacts the recruiting. Here's a, a quick preview. It doesn't. Uh, and, and then we're going to talk about the recent, uh, actually it was announced today, charges against Sebo Flem- Flem- Flemister uh, from a traffic accident. Uh, we'll just briefly touch on that. And then we're going to dive into Notre Dame's recent recruiting push, which launched really the last couple of days, which I think is an absolutely ingenious ingenious tremendous recruiting push by Notre Dame so we'll get into that I'll show some pictures of, of what's going on if you haven't seen it uh, it is it is really really impressive so um, you know so let's dive into this first let's let's first talk about Dylan Gibbons and his decision to transfer from Notre Dame this is not a this is not a uh, this isn't a this isn't a decision that's really surprising to anyone uh, you know I think Dylan was a guy that that entered the spring. Uh, as the first team left guard, that was due mainly to the fact that he was an experienced guy. Uh, he was a guy that um, <clears throat> you know was someone that had started a game last year. He started against Syracuse, obviously when there were injuries he came off the bench last year against Florida State and he did some good things. But the reality is is there were a lot of younger players battling for that job. A, a lot of younger players that with for being honest had more talent than he did. And uh, his hold on the first team left guard job didn't last very long. In fact, it didn't even last past really five or six practices. It became clear uh, that players like Andrew Kerstoffik and then obviously uh, Rocco Spindler were were going to beat him out. So um, it's not surprising that, that Dylan is in a situation that he decided he wants to leave. Uh, when you look at where he went from being a potential first-team left guard to essentially his role as the spring went on was to train to be the backup center, and and I don't think he he handled that well. Not personally, he just wasn't a great snapper. Uh, that's really what it boiled down to. Is as you saw in the spring game, we saw in a lot of the uh, a lot of the practices, he just was not a guy that really had snapping down very much. And so I think that was something that um, that that the writing was on the wall that he wasn't going to last in Notre Dame very long. And, and again, Dylan is a tough kid. But when you just if you're going to rank the offensive lineman from a standpoint of, you know, top to bottom from a talent potential standpoint, it's not overly surprising that he got beat out. So that part's not not surprising. And, and I'm going to pull up here the, the depth chart. Let's take a peek at this. Uh, real quick. <clears throat> so we're going to look at the, the Notre Dame offensive line depth chart and talk about what this, what this means for Notre Dame. So you can see the depth chart here. Um, look, here, here's the situation. I'm going to zoom in a little bit. So this is a little bit easier for you to see. Okay. So this is what Notre Dame's depth chart looks like right now. And obviously Dylan Gibbons is now out. So he is, he was obviously one of the more experienced players on the roster. He was one of the bigger players on the roster. When you look at Notre Dame now, per my count, this is the spring roster, so there are 12 offensive linemen on this roster right now, uh, scholarship offensive linemen, and then, of course, Notre Dame is going to welcome two more offensive linemen in the fall when Joe Alt and Pat Coogan arrive. I think when you look at Notre Dame's depth chart, I think this is a position where it hurts to lose a veteran player. It hurts to lose a guy that has – uh, experience, but it it doesn't necessarily hurt from a number standpoint. In, in my opinion, I think when you look at um, w- when you look at a situation where with Dylan he he was going to be a backup, and you have a veteran guy that's a backup, and I think when that's the when that's the case, it, it's nice to have it in as as an insurance policy. But what his decision to leave does is it now opens up opportunities for Notre Dame to more quickly find the player that is going to be the ultimate eventual replacement for Zeke Correll in that also opens up an opportunity for perhaps a younger player to emerge into that that backup center role whereas if this move doesn't happen may, maybe they don't find the need for that so i i think it's certainly a, a loss in in that you lost a talent some you know somewhat talented player big big player with experience but i I don't think it's one that's going to necessarily move the needle in one direction or another perhaps dylan could have come out in the spring or in the fall and had a great fall camp and and beaten the guy out but the reality is when a fifth year senior gets beat out halfway through the spring by a true freshman the odds of that of that fifth year senior seeing a seeing a bigger jump over the next three four months than the red than the true freshman is is slim and so I think that is where we're ultimately going to see Dylan Gibbons transfer. Now here's the, here's the situation. Now his transfer impacts Notre Dame in this regards more than anything. They're now not in, they're now in a tougher position to where should they lose another player to transfer? Should they have an injury or two? Then Notre Dame would be in a much tougher situation. And, and but just this decision alone, in my opinion, doesn't put Notre Dame in a, in a really, really rocky starts, a rocky position. So uh, I think it's something that they'll be able to overcome uh, relatively easily, and that's not a knock on Dylan Gibbons <clears throat> at all. I think Dylan is a Dylan is a fine football player. I think he needs to transfer to like a South Florida, Central Florida, some school like that, and he can start for two years because technically he has a sixth year because of the COVID year. But it's just not a loss from the standpoint of he wasn't a <clears throat> he wasn't a guy that was necessarily going to start, and it's a pretty it's a pretty talented depth chart. It's just a depth chart that lacks, lacks experience. And now there's more reps to be had by Andrew Kristofik, by, um, John Dirksen, by Rocco Spindler, obviously, uh, by Quinn Carroll. There's more, there's more reps to be had there as Notre Dame looks to find who their guards are going to be for the season. So that's it on the, on the, the Dylan Gibbons standpoint. Again, as we talked about last night, I'm just going to go through a lot of stuff, talk about a lot of things. I'll get to questions at the end if y'all have them. If you have something you want to ask during the show before we get to the Q and A, uh, feel free to do a super chat, and you know we'll bump you up to uh, to the top of the line and get that question a- answered. So that's where they're at for the offensive line. Now, the other the other thing that broke today was that uh, running back Sibo Flemister was. Uh, charged with a a misdemeanor. Let's, let's going to pull it up here real quick. Um, Let me find it here real quick. I'm going to pull this down so I can find it. Uh, He was charged with a misdemeanor today based on an accident where he left the scene of an accident. So I don't know anything beyond that other than uh, he was, this was reported by WNDU by Megan Smedley. Just pull it up here real quick. Uh, and essentially it just says that he, um, he fled the scene of an accident. He got in an accident at three o'clock in the morning on April 25th. And when the cops got there, he was gone. So there there's a potential that he's going to be charged. I would, I would imagine there's going to be some sort of internal as Brian Kelly always handles these things, some sort of internal punishment for Siebel. I don't know if that's going to just be, you know, running laps I don't know if it's going to be a, a more strict punishment co- community service or something along the lines of where uh, uh you know suspended for games I just I don't know the answer to that this is still pretty early as the article stated Notre Dame has not commented and this just came out really just this afternoon so this is still a developing situation now let's get to what I wanted to really talk about which is this massive recruiting push that Notre Dame has started and and I really I I I have to say I have been super impressed by by what Mike Elson has done as he's gone through, uh, as he's taken over the recruiting coordinator job. We've seen a, an emphasis in recruiting areas change. We're seeing Notre Dame hit certain parts of the country a little harder. We're seeing, especially on defensive staff, that is really, really t- uh, going to make a push to, to, to land a great class. We're seeing a lot more uh, – cooperation amongst coaches we're seeing a lot more teamwork amongst coaches a lot more everybody being on the same page which was a problem before from from people that i've talked to so see, we, the pot of gold that we saw on st patrick's day was a really good move uh, a lot of the zoom things that they're doing are, are are good they're getting brian kelly more involved in recruiting uh you know and i think mike Elson is having a a a, a hand in that a big hand in that and th- one of the things that I was concerned about when this whole this whole name, image, and likeness thing came up, one of my concerns was, how would Notre Dame handle this? Is Notre Dame going to sort of be a, we're not supporting this, we don't believe in this? You know, Jack Swarbrick had said some things, but, you know, how would Brian Kelly, how would the program handle it? You know, hey, we, we don't want to put anyone above the team. There's all types of, of ways that coaches can respond to this name, image, and likeness thing that that could hurt the program. And and there's ways that you can respond to it. They're gonna help the program. And I've been really curious about what Notre Dame would do because as I've written before in the past at IrishBreakdown.com, Notre Dame is in a unique, unique position in which this name, image, and likeness thing is actually something that could help Notre Dame from a recruiting standpoint in, in regards to how it goes against those big schools that a lot of people, including myself, perceive to be, you know doing some underhanded things financially to get players to go to school there. And so Notre Dame has this unique brand, this, this powerful brand behind it. And are they going to use that to benefit their players? And what we're seeing is that Notre Dame is starting this new push that is going to do. It's really a, a two pronged thing, three pronged thing, really. Number one, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a billboard push, a physical billboard push. It's a social media blitz that started today. And it's also the coaches, from my understanding, the Notre Dame coaches have been on the phone today calling high school coaches in all those areas, like all the top high school coaches in all those areas. And it's basically saying, hey, look, we're Notre Dame, you know, where we're, you know our history, you know our tradition. You also know our present, you know, two two playoff appearances in the last three years. You know, look at all the kids that we just put in the NFL. It's Notre Dame building on the momentum. And that is so important. And I love this push. And so that's, that's it. But now it helps in two areas. The first area is this is a great recruiting tool. Look, whatever your opinion of it is, whether you love it or you hate it, it's really not for us. It's for 16, 17 and 18 year olds in these areas. And I've, uh, I've seen either billboards or heard about billboards in like Dallas, Tampa, Phoenix, LA, Detroit, Charlotte, New Jersey, all over the, Chicago, Detroit, Indianapolis. This is going all over the country. That these these physical billboards are being put up, and uh, it, it's just such a great, great thing. And I'm gonna I'm gonna pull one of these up. This is one in St. Louis of Kyron Williams. Now there were a couple in St. Louis. There was also one of Gabriel Rubio. You can see that here. This is a a, a physical, literal billboard of Kyron Williams, and it's a pitch of Hey, I'm from St. Louis. And I chose Notre Dame and here's why. And essentially that's what the push that Notre Dame is. This one is in New Jersey. This is the Adamiola twins from, this is a a picture that, that their father took and sent to me. Uh, I mean, how, how cool is that? If you're sitting there, you know, you're driving around and that's your kid's thing. I saw a picture of, 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 as I say, in the article of Ocita Iguanu, I've seen pictures of this all over the country, which is just a really, really great push. I think this is this is so smart for Notre Dame because number 1 it's going to have a big impact in recruiting. You know, if there's top players in, in St. Louis and Dallas and all these areas that they're trying to recruit, these are hotbeds for football. Now all of a sudden they're going to be driving around seeing these billboards for Notre Dame football. If you don't think it's going to matter, I'm telling you it, it does. It this kind of stuff matters. It's a great push, but here's the other part of where it's important. This is Notre Dame's kind of first salvo of saying, "Hey, this branding thing" we're on board and we're going to help our players. If this is something that's going to benefit our players and we're going to help the branding of our players. Now they can't get paid off these billboards and not, there's no revenue being generated from these billboards. They're just advertisements essentially. But what this does is this is a great recruiting tool for, for the players or for the team, because they're gonna say, Hey, look, we're Notre Dame. We're one of the biggest institutions, not just in America and in sports, but in the world. I mean, you know, about Notre Dame, you travel all over the country. People tell me, that people know about Notre Dame, and, and now you're getting this kind of this kind of big push from Notre Dame. Hey, we're going to build you up. We're going to build your brand, and and so not that you're not just it's like a bunch of Notre Dame players fighting to get the the car dealership in South Bend. You know, they're you know the Jeep Auto. You know, what's it, Gurley Leap Automotive, right? It's not like uh, the whole Notre Dame team trying to see who gets the benefit from there. This is a push where hey, we're going to go back to your hometown. And, and that is where a lot of these things could be attractive for these players. So I think this is just a brilliant, brilliant move by Notre Dame. I, and this is the second thing they've done. <clears throat> this is obviously taking it to another level than the pot of gold. But we saw that with the pot of gold where we're really seeing Notre Dame embrace the digital age when it comes to recruiting. And that was a that was a concern of mine. I think it took them a little while to get going. They started doing some things this offseason and, uh, I, I think that that they've been gotten more and more creative with Elston in charge. I think they're even pushing it even more. I absolutely love love what they're doing with this recruiting push, and I think this is going to pay off in a big way. And I really loved, I really loved how how they targeted certain big areas, but they didn't go because here's the other concern of it, right? Is you do something like this, but you kind of do it like halfway. You know, you do like five to ten, and you, you know you kind of get it in areas where you already have success. But they're going all over. I mean, they're like I said, Phoenix. They're going to Dallas. They're going to Tampa in Florida. I mean, this stuff matters. I'm telling you, I've recruited teenagers for a long time. This kind of stuff matters, uh, and and I think it's just a a a brilliant brilliant move by Notre Dame. So uh, I I think it's going to help. I think it's going to be big for Notre Dame. So that's kind of what's going on right now with Notre Dame football. And we're going to find out, I think, pretty quickly how this push is going to help. And I think it all leads into – it's all building on top of each other towards these June visits. So now you got these boards up. I'm not sure how long they're going to be up. But you got these boards up in these big cities where these kids that Notre Dame are trying to get on campus are are going to try to come from. So, you know, you're trying to get some of those kids from IMG – Guess what's close to IMG? Tampa's right around the street. There's a lot of big time players in the Tampa area. You're trying to get more involved in Texas, so now you got this big billboard down there. You're trying to get Anthony Lucas down from Arizona. Well, guess what? Now you got this big giant billboard down in Arizona. So I, I just I think these things are excellent. I think they're amazing. And 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 I, I'll be honest with you, I I've, I've been a little surprised by the fan reaction by it. I have not seen a single negative comment about it. And normally when Notre Dame in the past has done these sort of outside the box things people kind of get a little, uh, you know, Hey, this isn't, this isn't something that, you know, they did in the past, you know, whatever. But this, this is a, this to me is a great, great, great uh, move for Notre Dame. And, And Jay says the billboards are genius. I agree, but it's not just the billboards. Right. And that's the thing I like about it is it's the billboards plus it's it's a situation where it's the it's the it's the push where they're calling high school coaches. Hey, look, I'm so and so. I'm 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 your regional coach. Uh, you know, we're really trying to get in your area. It's a push from it's a player driven push. Meaning, it's not you know Brian Kelly's face on there saying, "Hi, I'm Brian Kelly. I'm the head coach of Notre Dame. Come play for me." It's it's kids that that are on these players' level. I mean, you know, a, a kid from St. Louis is going to relate more to Kyron Williams and his story. Then they're going to relate to Brian Kelly. That's just Nathan. That's true of Lincoln Riley, Davo Sweeney. That players are always going to relate better to people they're closer to their age than they are to to us as older older people. At least myself as older people. I can't say that everybody's an older person. <clears throat> so I, I really like it. I think this is certainly a, a great push, and and I think we're going to see a lot more of this kind of stuff. I I think this is um. This is something that's going to be huge. Liam gave me to ask any initial reaction from kids about the billboards. Um, from what I've seen, the response on social media, it's been it's been impressive. It's been impressive as far as like how it's going to move the needle with recruits in regards to, you know, is this going to be something that maybe moves Notre Dame up boards? That's going to take a little bit more time. Uh, this just got launched within the last couple of days, Liam. So, so in regards to the practical reaction, Um, I think it's going to take a little bit of time, but the initial reaction to which was your question, it's been it's been big. I know the Notre Dame players love it. And and that's the other thing is, um, you, you know, I think there's
0: there's a. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
2: You know, when I when I look at it, it's one of those things where Notre Dame making a push to brand players is something that is really gonna resonate with a lot of young people, in my opinion. So I I think this is a great move. And, you know, look, it's just another step in what has been a very, very strong offseason. So uh Dynasty ISP, can we get a billboard in California, preferably near an In-N-Out? Well, if there's one in L.A., my, my understanding is that there was a billboard in L.A. And if, if it's in L.A., there's a chance it's by an In-N-Out, at least based on the areas in L.A. I've been to in the past. So, The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. so anyway so that's that's where we're at today so now at this point in time you know let's open it up to questions if ever anybody has questions we can we can talk a little football if you guys want to talk more about the offensive line and just kind of where things stand we can do that let's you know i think that would be something that would be be uh wise to do we can look at the depth chart and, and just where things stand so fire away with your questions i'll get to those uh here as we go through it otherwise we'll be a little bit quicker today than we we have been in the past, but I just wanted to kind of to, to discuss those things and share my initial thoughts on uh, um, just just where we're at right now. So Sean Terry asks: Are O line development and wide receiver use now the two areas in which we most badly need change? You know, Sean, I, I don't want to. I, I would say O line development. I you know I, I I think are you if you're referring to the Dylan Gibbons situation, this is just part of life. I mean, especially when you have a fifth year senior who's entering in arguably his last year of college football. Maybe he gets a six somewhere. This kid wants to play and he got beat out by better players, you know, and, and I, I don't, I don't know if it would have been any different if Harry Hestan was here. I think the only thing that would have been different if Harry Heastan was here, I think we should all be able to agree that that coach Heastan is, is a guy that was an excellent developer of players. I don't. I, I still think Dylan Gibbons gets beat out. I think the question would have been: Would he have gotten beat out by a true freshman, or would he have gotten beat out by an Andrew Kristofic or a Quinn Carroll or somebody along those lines? I think that would have been a more fair question about development. But you know, I, I think development is is something that I'm I'm going to hold off on until we get to the fall. I mean, I mean, look, I didn't like what Coach Quinn did in eighteen and nineteen. Very critical of him. I thought he did a you know him and and Chris Watt combined to do a great job in twenty twenty. I thought Notre Dame did a very good job this past season. And, you know, now let's give him a chance to see what he's going to do in 2021. And if the offensive line struggles, then you can say, yeah, where were you developing Krzysztof and Lug and, and uh, you know, players like that? That that could be a problem. So, But I, right now I just I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt because he is on the right trajectory in that they just came off a season in which they had one of the two or three best offensive lines in the entire country. And it was a group that, that really fueled the entire offense and really is a big reason why Notre Dame went went 10 and 0 in the regular season this year because obviously defense helped, but the offensive line was was a big part of it too. Wide receiver is, yeah, I mean wide receiver development is an interesting conversation in and what how the receivers are used because I think it is a development issue. I I think receiver is a position that that ultimately and I, I talked about this in a radio show recently, where ultimately, you know, people say, Well, look, Miles Boykin panned out and Chase Claypool panned out, and you know, Javon McKinley had a great final year. And I think my issue is is cream is always going to rise to the top, right? I mean, if you have the talent, eventually you're in a system long enough. You're you're gonna pick up enough things to where if you're talented enough, you're gonna be successful. But I think if you if you go back and read a lot of the criticisms that NFL scouts and NFL draft analysts make about Notre Dame receivers in recent seasons, and it was a big criticism of Chase Claypool. And it was a reason that I said, I said it when he was coming up, I told people, I said, there's a reason people don't think he's as fast as he is because his route technique needs a lot of work. Well, the Steelers worked a lot on that. You saw the video of Chase this summer where he came back to Notre Dame and made a comment. He's like, you know, if I, you know, if I could run routes like this, you know, in college, I would have been, you know, something like he would have been really good. And thinking well yeah that's kind of a problem that in four years you didn't learn that but you can learn it one one mini camp or one training camp with the Steelers that's that's a problem that's a problem with your coaching and that's a problem with your development and it's it's a problem that we've seen especially in recent seasons and when people talk about you know who are the young receivers that have really stepped up and emerged none of them are from this recent surge in this position particular position coach so I, I think that's certainly problematic but I'm hoping that the changes that Tommy Reese is going to be making schematically will help somewhat negate some of that. And I'm hoping that Coach Alexander gets it in gear because you know, I, I liked the hire when they made it. He had a good reputation as a position coach. I don't know if developing young players was a problem at other places. I didn't study it enough at, at, to really have that opinion, but he did come with a reputation as a, as a very good position coach. He He's going to need to get back to it. Okay. Um, Searcher Green says, what kind of trouble is Sibo looking at with his class B misdemeanor if it holds up? I, I honestly don't know. I mean, there's there's so many different things that could go into this. Why did he leave? What caused the accident that we don't know answers to? I don't want to speculate on. It's not fair to him uh, to do that. But, um, you know, we, we just have to learn a lot more about this in, in regards to, to your question. And you've followed up later in regards to what it means for Notre Dame. I think it just depends on the severity of it and some of the other factors that are going to go into it that are going to determine whether this is something that's kind of a, you know, hey, you're picking up trash in the locker room for the next month or you're suspended for a period of time. I mean, th- those are the, the ranges of of what it could be, but you know, it's it's not a good look for SIBO. It's, it's, you never want to put yourself in that situation, especially when you're battling for, for playing time and, and you've got a couple really talented freshmen coming in. So it's, uh, it's not a good situation for him. Jason says, hit the like button for the YouTube algorithms. Yes, please hit the like button. If you're in the show now and you're watching, please hit the like button. It takes like two seconds. Hit the like button, and uh, it, it helps us grow our channel. Okay, Connor Patton asks, now that we're in a transfer era, should Notre Dame recruit some guys who are okay with supporting roles? I think they've always done that, and I think that's why we've seen Notre Dame have less transfers because – They have recruited so many developmental players. You know, look, the expectation for a Jordan Johnson or a CJ Williams or Tobias Merriweather or Michael Floyd or, you know, go down the list of highly ranked players that Notre Dame has recruited, more often than not, their expectation of playing time early on is going to be different than, you know, a three-star player that that's that's kind of excited where Notre Dame was his biggest offer. And, you know, he's just, he just, he's, he understands he's going to he's going to need some time. And I don't think that's necessarily going to change in the transfer era. I think Notre Dame has always done a good job of of it, well, not always. More so in recent seasons. We've seen Notre Dame do a very good job of balancing out the classes with the exceptions of the 2020 class which completely struck out at linebacker and safety. Outside of that in recent years we've seen them you know hit the hit the the numbers at all positions but also not just hit the numbers with a lot of highly ranked guys perception wise but guys that they say hey look you're a guy that's going to come in we're going to build you up we're going to get you where you need to get to and those players have had enough patience to 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 be effective but I also think that uh, at a lot of positions Notre Dame has not been afraid to play freshmen. we've seen them play freshman running backs at times not a ton but at times you know, we had Michael Mayer play this shit last year. He was more of an anomaly at tight end. We've seen Robert Hainsy started as a true freshman offensive lineman. Brock, uh, Blake Fisher is going to start as a true freshman offensive lineman. Myron Tungvaloa, Kurt Hines, Jason Adamiola are all guys that are currently on the roster now that off the top of my head played as freshmen, not just a snap here and there, but were key parts of the rotation. So Shane Simon and Bo Bauer were very important special teams players as freshmen. Tariq Bracey played as a freshman. Kyle Hamilton played as a freshman. So the freshman issue that I've been so upset with has been more of a specific position problem, and it's really about two positions. It's quarterback number one, which I'm not as upset by. You know, that's more of a redshirt freshman problem, but more so the receiver problem, And, and the fact that we've consistently seen, especially under this current coaching staff, This has been a this has been a problem because, again, people point to TJ Jones and they'll point to Kevin Stefferson. And I say, well, there's a long list of players that have signed with Notre Dame and you can only point to two that played as freshmen. And there's been some years that Notre Dame's had some pretty mediocre receiving quarters after their top guy. So it's not a good argument, first of all. And it's always a bad argument when you have to find an anomaly or an exception to a rule and then try to make that the rule. That's a very poor way of arguing number one. And number two, the person who was responsible for coaching those two players that did place freshmen are not here. So it really has no basis. It's a different offensive coordinator. It's a different wide receivers coach. So it's a really irrelevant argument if we're being honest about it. So I, I do think that that position specifically needs to be improved. But overall, Connor, I don't think Notre Dame has a big problem of playing freshmen. And I think that especially on defense, as you're getting into more of a situational football and you're getting into more, you know, waves of players, you're going to see more and more and more playing eight, nine guys up front, playing five guys at linebacker, playing four corners in a game, playing three to four safeties in a game. I think you're going to see a lot of that. Offensively, I think is where they're going to need some work on that. Um, John A1 says, let's see here. Uh, John A1 says, I understand where Gibbons is coming from. He thought he'd be the guy this year, and he just wants to play. Tough loss for Notre Dame, seeing he's on the on, on one of the few guys with some experience. Good luck to him, John. That's where I'm at. Like I have no ill will towards Dylan Gibbons. I get it. I, he wants to play, and, and more power to him. I completely understand. I also understand, and I also appreciate where Notre Dame has come from. So let, let me let me tell you something. Notre Dame coaches are just like anybody else. If they want to manipulate the roster, they can manipulate the roster. And here's what I mean by that. You can give Dylan Gibbons first team reps and then rotate Rocco Spindler in there, or you can move Rocco Spindler to right guard. There's things you can do to make Dylan Gibbons happy because you want him to come back next year and you want want that depth. Notre Dame could have easily done that. Teams do that all the time in the spring. Hey, we know if we play this freshman, this young player over this guy, he's going to leave. Well, if we wait till August, he's not going to leave in August, most likely. Notre Dame could have played that game, but they didn't. They chose to be honest about it. They chose to say, look, Rocco Beach out. We're going to put Rocco there. And now that now Dylan gets a chance to go play somewhere else. And he is the, the ninth player to leave uh, since the season ended. And some of them are 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 situations like this where it's like, look, it, it, it's a it's you're a victim of circumstance in that you happen to be in a position that's very talented and very deep. Kendall Labdur was in a similar situation. Ovia Gofu was in a similar situation. He was going to have to battle to keep you know that number two job, and and that's a good thing. It's it's okay to lose players sometimes if it's a situation where they just got beat out by other people and they want to go play. No, I think, but not every situation is that way. John Smith asks, "What happened to Hunter Spears?" I still have not been told a thing. I've tried to do some digging on this, and not, nobody, ha, nobody's telling me anything. All I know is he didn't practice this spring. He was with the team. He was he was at practice. I've seen videos of him standing near Jarrett Patterson in in the workout clothes, but he didn't practice this spring. So I honestly have no idea. Mike Padone says, "I hope Notre Dame is paying Elson well. Can't afford to lose him." Mike, I'm gonna t- I'll tell you this right now. You know how many times Mike Elson has gotten um, role changes or title changes or every time something like that happens, there's a pay raise that comes with it, which is why you give him the new title. So believe me, Notre Dame has given Mike Elson a lot of pay raises. And to your point, if they go out and land the kind of recruiting class that I think they can, another one should, uh, <laughs> should be coming. So. Thomas Walsh asked this, is Chris Watt no longer on the staff? If not, where did he go? He is not. He actually uh, left a month or two ago. He is now the full-time offensive line coach at Tulane, working under their off first-year offensive coordinator, Chip Long. So there's a couple names you should recognize. But he is uh, now a full-time coach. Uh, off- he is their main offensive line coach at Tulane. And it is a it is a big loss a lot of people were upset about that upset from the standpoint of losing him everybody understood why he left and they were happy for him it's just it, it, it's it's a tough loss cuz chris watt was a very important part of of what they did and if if you don't think that he had a big role and i know thomas you do that then then you're 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 mistaken here john a1 says in the transfer portal era how does the coaching staff keep the team together now guys who aren't starting are going to be recruited by other schools while on your team well number one john it's not really it's hard for teams to recruit. They're going to be more picky and choosy about who they're recruiting because you're still not allowed to, to recruit players until they enter the portal. And so that, that you have to be careful of it. You can't just do a full-out recruiting, but you can do it. it. But it's more targeted, this guy, that guy. But how you keep guys on your team is you build relationships with them. You, you build trust in them. You create a situation in which they know that they're going to get their opportunity. And then, if that time doesn't come, you, you know they, when they transfer, they're going to transfer at the right time. What you want to do if you're Notre Dame is, you want to say, "Hey, make sure guys are on track to graduate early. Make sure they're on time track to graduate three to three and a half years, so that way, when guys leave, they can transfer with a degree and still have two, you know, one to two years of eligibility remaining." I think that's a that's an important thing for Notre Dame, and I think that's why it's so important, John, to how Notre Dame recruits in the first place. One thing that I give Brian Kelly a lot of credit for over the years when it comes to recruiting is not something necessarily he's done, but the messaging that he's demanded of his coaches. I have been told many, many times from Notre Dame coaches that one thing that Brian Kelly has always done is he says, hey, we're selling Notre Dame first. We're going to sell our program. We're going to sell our our coaches. We're going to sell our schemes and all those kind of things. But, And this has been especially true in the last four or five years that you're going to sell Notre Dame first. And when you sell Notre Dame first, then these kids are coming to Notre Dame because they understand there's something, there's more to it. A four for 40, all that stuff matters. I'll give you an example, and I won't say a player's name, but there was a player that we had a, a breakout spring that there was a lot of rumblings he was going to transfer. My understanding, talking to sources, close situations, he thought about transferring. But after a conversation with his mother and it came down to, hey, number one, you're going to stay and compete. And he wanted to compete. But number two, you're close to getting your degree. You're going to stay and get your degree and you're going to stay and you're going to battle. And he was on board with it. He went out and battled and had a great spring. So you have those things more frequently in Notre Dame when you're selling the institution just as effectively, if not more effectively than you're selling your coaches which is why you don't see Notre Dame have a lot of losses of players after position coaches or coordinators leave. Because again, you're selling something bigger than just that. So that's a big part of it, John. And I think the final piece is be be accountable to your team, build relationships with your genuine relationships with your players. Uh, I think that if they trust you, then there's more, they're more likely to stay and see it through if they don't feel you have their back as the head coach or a coordinator or position coach, then they're going to be more likely to leave. And some of the guys we've seen leave are guys that felt like their coach did not have their back true or not, whatever it was, the perception. And I think that is something that, um, that has really kept Notre Dame's transfers down. And again, yes, they have nine transfers you know, right now on the front, since the offseason, 10, if you count Jameer Smith, who transferred, who left the team during the season, but then announced he was transferring after the season. But you look at, and you look at those guys, they're going to, they're going to power five schools for the most part. Shafar Armstrong went to Illinois. Colin Grunhard went to Kansas. Ovia Gofu went to Texas. Isaiah Rutherford went to Arizona. Jack Lamb went to Colorado. And then I would imagine Jordan Johnson is going to go to a power five school as well. So, I, you know, the, the, these are desired kids. It's just a lot of them. Jafar Armstrong buried on the depth chart. Kendall Abrahamon buried on the depth chart. Micah Jones buried on the depth chart. You know, Colin Grunhard, his situation a little different. Jack Lamb buried on the depth, bar, depth chart. Isaiah Rutherford buried on the depth chart. So, I mean, those are transfers you're okay. You don't ever want to lose kids, but those are transfers you can live with because, you know, look, the kid battled. He just he got beat out, and there's a better opportunity for somewhere. And, Stayed through the season, kept battled it out, competed, and then he made the move at the right time, which was in the offseason. Kevon McPherson says, the Elston-Freeman recruiting duo is building a dynasty for Notre Dame. Makes me hope Freeman has the head coaching job in his future sights when Kelly retires. I think there's a lot of Notre Dame fans that feel that way. I'm intrigued by the option, but again, I I need to see him coach at Notre Dame first. Uh, He's done a really good job on the recruiting trail the people I've talked to on the team, the players really, really like them and respect them as they did Clark Lee, as they did Mike Elko, but really, really connect and and, and bond with them, which is important. Um, I, I've heard a lot more. I'll say this, and it's hard to really know this because Mike Elko's situation was in such a weird time, but I've heard a lot more conversations. I've heard a lot more tidbits from people that I talked to as sources that talk about how Marcus Freeman does a lot more talking to the players about non football stuff than they've than they're used to from a coordinator, in that it's like, you know, hey, how you doing, checking in on you, getting to know kids. And that's so important. That's not important just from a defensive coordinator standpoint, but that's important from a building up your reputation and your showing your character to the people in the program, but then the people at the school that say, hey, look, this is a guy that cares about his players. He's a successful coach, successful recruiter. He's got all the things you look for, comes from a big program, played the NFL, all the things you look for to, to for a potential head coach. Because as a coordinator, he's always going to have one big black mark on his resume, and that's he's never been a head coach. So you you have to make sure you're shining in all those other areas. And so far, Marcus Freeman is doing that. Now we just got to see that he can coach in the fall. That's going to be the big thing. Okay, uh this has been asked before. Brandon Krim, who would be your choice, a good choice if Dell gets replaced, not going to say he's going to be replaced. And, and i said this before, Brandon, I don't I don't really have anyone. There's a lot of good receiver coaches out there. You know, I've talked before about um uh, Tyron Carrier, who's the coach at Houston, just because I've followed him a little bit closer, because I liked what he did at West Virginia. If, if if coach Alexander, you know, needed to be replaced at some point in time, if I was Brian Kelly and I don't even know if he would do this because he's been in the NFL so long, but I would call Curtis Johnson in New Orleans. I think Curtis Johnson's the best receivers coach in the business. He was the receivers coach back at Miami when they had, oh, goodness gracious, Santana Moss, Reggie Wayne, Andre Johnson. He was a phenomenal – he was someone who I studied when I got into coaching receivers. I had some videos of him. And I would watch practice tape of Miami players and then how he taught routes. And, and I mean, he is a phenomenal, phenomenal coach. But and you see what he's doing with the Saints. So I would call him, but I have no, no clue if Coach Johnson would have any interest in in uh in coming back to college or coming to Notre Dame. Uh so but that that'd be something that'd be very, very interesting to see if he's gonna do that. So D D Rock, here we go. Um, yeah, this is great, D-Rock. So 24-7 sp- sports points to Four games that may decide the championship here. Notre Dame is listed as four of them. I'm going to pull that up because this was hilarious. Um, it it, it re- let's let's pull this up here real quick so people can see this. So this is what he's talking about. It was basically a, a chart here from 24/7 Sports on Twitter on social media, and it shows ten games that could decide the national championship. Right, that will shape the playoff race. Okay. Notice a pattern here? See a lot of those interlocking NDS in there, don't you? And th- and this was funny because it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, Notre Dame needs to join a conference and it's off schedule. But you know, this the, it was the games they chose were a little interesting. You obviously the North Carolina game down here. There's a lot of hype about how good North Carolina is going to be. USC is considered along with Oregon the contender for the Pac-12. Wisconsin, Notre Dame. I think that one's more from the Notre Dame standpoint. And then, of course, Cincinnati-Notre Dame was three. I thought that was very interesting that that game was higher than Oregon-Ohio State. But, uh, it, you know, to me, when you look at it, you say, you know, that's a situation where Cincinnati has to run the table. And a win over Notre Dame gives Cincinnati a great opportunity to have that resume builder to go out there and and earn a playoff bid. So I, I thought that was very interesting to see that one. Um, that one on there, but, but I, yeah, there's some, there's some good games. And if I'm looking at this correctly, three of those four games are at home for Notre Dame, Cincinnati's at home, USC's at home and North Carolina's at home. And then uh, the Wisconsin games in Chicago. So they're all close by. So Notre Dame's big games this year, with the exception of, I think um, Florida state is, is a road game, but most of their Stanford's on the road, but I don't think Stanford's going to be that great. So I, I think this could be this could be very impressive. Uh, the home schedule this year. Dynasty ISP asks: Can you compare the 2018 secondary to this coming season secondary to 2018? We only had Love, and this season we only have we only have Kyle Hamlet. Uh In 2018, Notre Dame didn't only have Love. Notre Dame had four NFL players in the secondary. That was one of the best secondaries in the country. I've ta- I've said this to people in the past, and, and I don't know if you've heard it or not. But I have some friends in the coaching business, and I have some people connected to, to coaches in the ACC, and the word in the ACC, this was leading up to the game and after the game, the word that I heard from coaches is that Clemson was telling their their friends in the coaching business that they were more worried about Notre Dame than they were Alabama because of how good Notre Dame's defense was that year and because of how good the secondary and the defensive line especially were that year. And if you look up to the point when Julian Love got hurt, Notre Dame was locking them down. Well, then when he goes down, they started picking on Dante Vaughn, And they had some success, but Alohi Gilman got drafted. He's in the NFL. Troy Pride got drafted. He's in the NFL. Uh, Troy Pride in the final seven or eight games of the year had better numbers than Julian Love. He allowed fewer completions, fewer yards per completion, and and a lower completion percentage. So I would strongly disagree that in 2018, they only had Julian Love. This year, it's more of a case that they only have Troy... Kyle Hamilton but that's because we're just there's a lot of unproven players outside of that Clarence Lewis is still just a sophomore Tariq Bracey has to learn to be more consistent get his confidence back Houston Griffith has to prove he can be a ready to made player I loved what I saw from Cam Hart in the, in the blue gold game but he's got to prove in the fall so there's certainly a lot of question marks and thank you for hitting the like button by the way that's a very important part of this but I think there's a lot of question marks about this secondary and and it's a. It's still my biggest concern about this defense heading into the season. I'll say this though: I'm a. Li- I'm more confident today than I was when the spring started because one, I thought Houston Griffith had a good spring. I thought he was good in the in the in the uh, blue gold game, even though he wasn't tested a whole lot. Played solid football. He was in position a lot. He was where he needed to be a lot. Was was taking away routes. I thought Justin Walters capped off a good spring with a, with a great performance as far as providing depth. I thought KJ Wallace had a good spring and he had a real good, uh, you know, real solid blue gold game. He provides depth. So I feel better about it. And we, you know, again, they didn't have Kyle Hamilton out there. And I thought cam Hart played really well. And I, and I was told about halfway through spring, kind of in the spring, people were saying, you know, cam's really coming along. He's playing a lot more confidence. Like the light has kind of gone on. And then I thought he played very, very well in the blue gold game. So uh, that was very impressive. And then Searcher Green follows up. Our young secondary may surprise people this year. They they need it to. They need it to. It's got the potential to do it, but they just have to, they just have to finish. Okay, let's see. I got some great, some more questions here. All right, Tommy Leonard, recruiting question hypothetical. How do recruiting rules apply when a coach has a nephew or son who's highly rated? Example of Elson had a five-star DN son that all the big programs want. I honestly, Tommy, have no idea how that works. None. I mean, I would imagine you—you you can't make the kids start paying rent, right? So I, I honestly don't have a clue how that goes. And and I, I do know, I do believe it's different for a child than it is a relative. I think when it comes to a relative, you have to be more careful. Um, but when it's your child, I honestly don't have a—I don't have a, a, a clue. Audrey Masuga says, "What percentage does the, what percent does the blame lie in these transfers? Are the kids not being coached well enough? Are the kids not working hard enough, etc.? So, number one, I want to dispel with this whole kids aren't working hard enough thing. And I'm not saying you're saying that. You're asking a genuine question, and it's a good question, Audrey. But there's a lot of talk about how you know, well, so and so didn't work hard enough. That's why it didn't pan out. And look, look, you have no clue. People, you generally speaking, have no clue if a kid's working hard enough." I think a lot of these situations Audrey it's 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 different. It's different for every kid. You know Notre Dame's had 10 kids leave, you know, transfer, 9 left after the season, 1 left during the season. And every situation was different. Conor, Colin Grunhard's situation was completely different than Dylan Gibbon's situation. Jordan Johnson's situation was completely different than Kendall Rahman's situation. And and on and on and on. And, and every situation's different and and I don't think every situation deserves blame. In the instance with Dylan Gibbons, I don't blame anybody. I think this is a, a normal, natural part of a football program. You have a good player, and Dylan Gibbons is a good player, who gets beat out by an even more talented younger player. That's just part of the deal. And when you're a coaching staff, and you're looking at building your offensive line from scratch, which is what Notre Dame is doing this spring, and you say, hey, look, yes, Dylan's got more more uh, experience, but we're trying to take the long game view of this. Dylan's maybe better today, but will he be better by September 5th? Will he be better by October 2nd? Will he be better by you know November 20th? Will he be better by the time we get to the playoff? And you say, I, I don't think that he will. So let's give this young kid a chance to develop because the young kid's far more talented. That is a good situation. That means you recruited well, you recruited a talented player, and he beat out a player that doesn't have his talent level. I don't think there's any blame for that. I, I've discussed about the blame with Jordan Johnson. There's blame to go all around to everybody. I felt the coaches deserved more of it. I don't blame anybody for what happened with, with Kendall Labder-Rahman. Kendall got in a bad situation in that he was a, a, a converted quarterback that got moved around a lot because of injuries and COVID. Because of COVID, Notre Dame's running back depth chart got wiped out in fall camp. There's one guy left, from what I'm told. And so they had to move Osita to running back for a while. Osita Ikuana, had to move Kendall Labrador Rahman. And he was a kid that couldn't afford to move around. And so that put him behind the eight ball amongst a really deep receiving core. And there's just better players ahead of him. I think you could say that if there was some blame to go around with his situation, it was that you are on a coaching staff that we've talked about doesn't have a receivers coach that does a very good job working with and developing younger players. That's a problem. That's especially problematic for a guy like Kendall Abderrahman who needed to coach. But again, I don't think even if you had a really good position coach there, I don't know if his situation would have changed because they have a really deep loaded receiving core. I think Jack Lamb's situation was one. I'm not going to get into it, but there was some blame that went around in how he was treated that didn't work out. That's not necessarily the case with Ovia GoFu. So every situation is different, and every transfer is not a negative thing for the program. Every transfer is not a a, uh, this is bad and, and this coach needs to get blamed or that player did something wrong. Sometimes it's just, hey, he got beat out by a better player. He wants to still go play everybody's happy. And, and P-Dub says healthy attrition. And, and honestly, I think I think that's a lot what it was. So that's a really good question, Audrey. Uh, and I hopefully that answers your question. But every, every situation is different. And then Audrey also says, in your opinion, why does it seem like the defensive philosophy is so much easier to modernize while the offense feels like it's gone the opposite direction in recent years? Well, I think one is the person driving the offensive philosophy is different than the person driving the defensive philosophy. When, when Brian Kelly... When, when Clark Lee was hired to be Brian Kelly's defensive coordinator, you were coming off a just disaster stretch of defensive football. And it was one of those things where you couldn't justify continuing to do what you did. It, it had to change. And so he brought in Mike Elko, and Mike Elko brought in Clark Lee, and then Mike Coach Elko left after. He did a great job in year one, great laid a great foundation, and then Clark Lee built on it. And you just hired good young coaches that that had successful defenses. And now you've hired another one. And and Brian Kelly's kind of let those guys say, Hey, look, I'm hiring you to do the job. Go do the job. Here's the expectation. Here's the standard. Now go get it done. On offense, he's tried to be more involved than he should, in my opinion. And on offense, he's he's dictated sort of, hey, let's this is how we want to play. You know, we get really good linemen. He says it all the time. We get really good linemen, we get really good tight ends. We we need to we need to be able to run the ball. And he hasn't, I think he he is so conservative. In how they approach things offensively, that it's like we don't want to do anything def- offensively that's going to get us beat because we feel we're better than just about everybody we play. Don't want to take a chance of of you know saying hey we're, you know you throw a pick in a situation you should have thrown a pick and you say hey that that that's how you get beat and so they're comfortable winning twelve to seven you know they're comfortable winning twenty seven to thirteen over Duke twelve to seven over Louisville because they're winning and I think they're so focused on the regular season that they're not they're not they're not in my opinion offensively they haven't been in the past building to beat Bama building to beat Clemson building to beat LSU they're building to beat all the teams on their schedule which the way the schedule's been recently isn't isn't as challenging and then they caught a break this year with Clemson and their injuries what what LSU had to do because they're in the same division with Bama is LSU had to say well we're getting our butt kicked every year by Alabama we got to do something different and they were forced, and, and Ed Orgeron was in a situation where if, if he didn't make the changes, he'd probably be out of a job by now. So he had to do it because they kept getting their butt kicked by Alabama every year. Well, if Notre Dame kept getting their butt kicked by USC every year, and it was because you know they're getting outscored and and their offense was slacking behind, then you then Brian Kelly would be forced to make those changes. He hasn't been forced to make those changes on offense and, until now because of the way, manner in which they lost back-to-back games. Because here's what's been happening in recent years. Notre Dame, 12-0 in 2018. They go you know down the stretch. They they run the table, and then they get into the playoff, and they get embarrassed in the playoff. And it's the – well, you know, Clemson's eventual national champions. You know, of course they're really good. You know, 2019, they go 11-2. They have two embarrassing games in which the offense completely chokes. But then the offense wakes up down the stretch against a, a pretty weak schedule, scores a bunch of points, and, and beats a mediocre Iowa State team bad Duke team, bad BC team, bad Navy team, well, undermanned Navy team. They were a good Navy team, but undermanned Navy team and a bad Stanford team. And like, oh, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. But you have no excuses this year, Audrey, because now you, you went out and you got embarrassed on, on, in, on the big stage, not just once at the end of the year, but twice in back-to-back games. And your offense looked pathetic in both games. And you have this Quarterback that's a fourth round pick that everybody says is wonderful and wins all these games. You have this great offensive line, and you say, "Well, what are the excuses?" You know, and so now it's like there are none. You have to make the changes, and I think that's where that's where his his situation is. Audrey also asks, "Where do you think Gabriel Rubio will fit in the rotation when the freshmen arrive?" So uh, Gabriel actually was doing really well. He's an early enrollee. He was in the in, in here the spring. I was told he was doing very well. He was working for a rotation in the um, at, at three technique before he hurt his arm. I think Coach Kelly said he had like a hyperextended or something like that. And so he couldn't play in the blue-gold game. And he missed the last week or week and a half of practice. But apparently he was doing very well, and they have him slated to play three technique. But I also think Gabriel could also play nose tackle as well. I think he could definitely play both of those positions uh, at, at Notre Dame. Jonathan says, as always, great commentary. Thank you. I always appreciate your opinion and honesty. Thank you. Uh, I know it's early, but what is your ideal starting five on the offensive line right now? My ideal scenario would be this. Well, okay. Okay. So let me say this. I don't think what this is. So here's what I think is going to happen based on what I'm told by my sources. And that is Blake Fisher, at left tackle Rocco Spindler, at left guard, Zeke Correll at center, Jarrett Patterson, at right guard, Josh, Luger at right tackle. That's what I've been told by my sources that they're going into the off season. And that's what they're, that's what they're doing. And so. What I would like to see happen. Is I'd like to see one of two things happen. Number one. I'd like to see Tosh Baker, and we, we t- I think Vince and I talked a little bit about this the other day in a podcast. I'd like to see Tosh Baker have a great offseason and a great fall camp, and he wins one of the s- tackle jobs, and then you move Josh Lug inside the guard, and then you have Lug next to Baker at right tackle, and you've got Patterson left next to, to Fisher at left tackle. That would be one of my two scenarios. The other scenario I'd like to see is Andrew Kristoffic has a great offseason, and, and he earns a starting job. And Jarrett Patterson is better at tackle than he is guard. And so then you have a situation where you have Patterson playing tackle, either Lug or Baker playing tackle, or you could even say Spindler or mean Fisher playing tackle. And then you have a situation where you have Lug at guard beside Fisher or Baker, or you have a situation, and then you'd have Patterson next to, to Rocco Spindler, or if Baker and Lug or Baker and, excuse me, if Kristofik is one of your guards and he's one of your starting guards, you have Lugsill at tackle, then you you have Patterson at, at left tackle, and then you have Spindler and Blake Fisher playing guard. Those are the scenarios that I think would be ideal. I'm just really nervous about playing two freshmen on the offensive line. Uh, and I don't care how good they are. And it's not about them. I think they're both great players. I just get a little concerned, a little concerned about that. Uh, and, and Audrey, I have not, I have not, um, heard that interview and, and honestly, I I don't know what he said. If you could, uh, if there's a link, if you can maybe put it in the chat or send it to me on DM, I'll certainly read it and respond to it. But, uh, if you also want to give us the, the, the gist of it, you know, feel free to Feel free to kind of share what was said, what was the gist of it, and if it was uh, if it was in somebody else's podcast, I didn't hear it, and I'm not going to hear it because I don't I not listen to anybody else's podcast. I got my enough of my own stuff to worry about. But if you could share kind of what what he said, I'd certainly appreciate that, and I can respond to that as as best I can. John follows up building off of what you said in relation to the haters saying we need to join a conference. Do you think Notre Dame will eventually be forced into a conference? I really hope not. But but what do you think? I think eventually they'll join a conference. I think eventually it's going to be too, the, the financial impact or the financial benefits of joining a conference are going to be too great. I think at some point in time, money is going to dictate Notre Dame joining a conference. Maybe it's a situation where they lose their TV deal and nobody else will sign them and they don't feel they can start their own network it could be something like that it could be a situation in which the money being given to these teams in these leagues is so great that they just they can't justify not getting a piece of it i think eventually one of those two things is going to happen to where it just it it makes too much sense not to be in a conference or and this is be the worst case scenario the ncaa disbands which isn't the worst case scenario i'd have no problem with that but the NCAA disbands, and they they do this super conference nonsense that they're talking about. And basically, they say, Notre Dame, if you want to be a part of it, you have to join a conference. And then Notre Dame would have to either join it or go play with the group of five teams, which I think we all know what Notre Dame would do there. Okay, Octav- Octavio Roche. I'm uh, hoping that to- Roca or Roche. Roca. Let's go Roca. Hopefully, I get that right. Octavio, if I don't get it right, let me know. To go along with what you said earlier, I remember asking Mayer in, an, in, in a Q&A last year if Chip Long leaving Notre Dame gave him any second thoughts, and he said, no, because you commit to a school, not a coach. You're absolutely right. And you know who was part of selling him on that, Octavio? It was Chip Long. And, and the other thing about Chip is Chip did a good job of, of not, even though he was having his character attacked by people in the media and by people at Notre Dame, he didn't respond in kind, when players would reach out to him, when recruits would reach out to him, he'd say, Hey, look, everything I said to you before is still true. Notre Dame a great place, but you sell Notre Dame. And, and if you sell Notre Dame, then you're not going to have this turnover when a coach leaves and you're not going to have kids are more likely to stick it out because you're selling. So that's a great point. That's a great specific, real example of that situation. And we've seen this happen in the past. I mean, you know, Notre Dame lost some kids after 2016. They certainly did. Pete Werner was the guy they lost. They lost players from that class, but a lot of the kids stuck around. And they did so because it's like, well, yeah, it's struggling right now, but it's, it's still Notre Dame. I I, I want to go to Notre Dame. I want to play for Notre Dame. And we saw that when Mike Elko left. We saw that when Clark Lee left. You know, kids, are, kids are committing to Notre Dame for the right reasons, and, and that is something that Brian Kelly deserves a lot of credit for. Because he does demand on the recruiting trail that, yes, you can sell yourself and your scheme and that relationship. That's all important. Trust me. I'm not saying they don't do that. What I am saying, however, is that you have to sell the program first. First. And that's important. Uh, Maddie K says, with Gibbons transferring, does this mean Spindler gets a start at one of the guard positions? Also, if Notre Dame goes undefeated this year, which will not be easy. How close of a gap has Notre Dame made to the top four? Okay, two parts of that. So the first part, Maddie, I don't think Gibbons transferring ensures that Dylan Gibbons is going to start because Dylan Gibbons wasn't playing guard anymore. If you go back and look at the the last, at least five or six spring practices, I don't know if I ever saw Dylan Gibbons a guard. I only saw him at center. He was working at center. I think Gibb uh, Spindler is in a battle right now with Andrew Christoffick. That's the battle that's been raging. So early in the spring, they were cross-training Andrew Kristofic at center. Well, then they finally moved him to guard and let him stay at guard, which is what those needed, and they moved Dylan Gibbons because he wasn't going to be in the mix to start anymore. And so now Rocco goes into the offseason in pole position at left guard, but he's going to have to hold off Andrew Kristofic, and, and, and I don't think that's going to be easy. And I personally would, I would love to see both of them play. I would have no problem if Notre Dame did at left guard what they did uh, in 2021, what they did at right tackle in 2017. I think there'd be some merit to that, M- mainly because also Andrew Kristovic needs to get a chance to play. Rocco needs to get a chance to play because you got to build depth. You've got one of your starting guards is likely coming off of a is is if he if Pat, if Jarrett Patterson stays a guard is coming off a major foot injury. You're going to lose Josh Lug after the year. You may lose Jarrett Patterson after the year. You need to play Andrew Kristofik number one, so that he stays. But number two, and most importantly, because he needs the work. That's where Notre Dame has not done a good job in recent seasons because their offense, they don't blow people out. They don't get a lot of reps for their backup offensive linemen, and that's been problematic. All right. And then the last part, I don't think another undefeated season does anything to move the needle for Notre Dame. Been there, done that. Brian Kelly's had three undefeated regular seasons now at Notre Dame right two in the last three years that that part of the gap has been closed notre dame is a legitimate top five to seven program no doubt about it now maybe they're not top five every year but when you look at the consistency that we've seen the last four years you know to me they're a top five top in my opinion they're top five program i think you could argue maybe they're six or seven but for me they're top five from from just over the course of a of the period of time yes lsu has a title but lsu's had more down years I'm talking about consistency i think they're top five but I don't think the gap closes at all, Natty, because we've seen that. And to go undefeated this year, they don't, they're not beating any of the teams that are above them. They're beating all the teams that are behind them. The only way Notre Dame is going to close the gap on those programs is to beat those programs. And, and they took a step last year by beating Clemson. And I don't care who was out for Clemson. That was still a big win for Notre Dame. That was still a program defining win for Notre Dame. But it got negated not by the fact that Trevor Lawrence didn't play or Tyler Davis didn't play or James Skalski didn't play, but, but the fact that you had to play them again with those guys and they spanked you. That's what hurt Notre Dame. Uh, and, and that's what, to me, erased all the positive vibes from that November 7th game. They got to win those games. And, and, and honestly, even a close loss would somewhat do it with an Alabama or a Clemson, but at some point in time, they, they've got to start winning those games, and they have to especially start winning those games on the biggest stage of them all, which is the college football playoff or a major bowl game. If they could, if you know, if Notre Dame and Alabama don't make the playoff this year and they play in the Orange Bowl or Sugar Bowl or something and Notre Dame beats them, that's huge. It doesn't have to be the playoff, but it has to be – you have to beat one of those three teams, in my opinion. and And those are the only three teams that I would say definitively are ahead of Notre Dame from a program standpoint on a consistent basis. I think you could argue Georgia because Georgia's beaten Notre Dame twice, you know, but Notre Dame has more playoff appearances. So that's why I say at least top five beyond that. You know, I mean, I think now, now you're saying, well, well, you know, maybe Oklahoma, but Oklahoma's kind of in the same boat. Notre Dame is in in a lot of ways. So I'd say top five, you could argue top five to seven and I wouldn't push back too much, but they're still within striking distance, but they got to win some of those games. Connor Patton, I'm looking forward to seeing Spindler. He looks like a tough kid. He's a very tough kid, and, and, and he's a wrestler. I think that's something that helps him, too. He was a high school wrestler. I think helps him with footwork and leverage and hand – you know, bingo in his hands, all those kind of things certainly helps him. And, of course, his dad played in the NFL, so he's going to have that good schooling as well. All right, Notre Dame 2164. It's a good question. Why do you think a lot of quarterbacks in Brian Kelly's system regress the longer they are in it? Because I think the longer they're in it, the more is put on their shoulders. And if you look at up until this past season, really, every great season that Notre Dame has had was with a first-year starter quarterback. Look at 2012, Everett Golson. 2015, Malik Zaire and then Deshaun Kaiser, both first-year starting quarterbacks. 2017, Brandon Wimbush, first-year starting quarterback. The next year, Ian Book takes over early, first-year starting quarterback. And Notre Dame offensively has not been the same since his first year. His numbers have not been the same since his first year. Uh, And and they're really big, big drop-offs. And I'm going to kind of show you an example here of what I'm talking about. So Ian Book, as a a redshirt sophomore, in 2018 completed 68.2% of his passes, averaged 8.4 yards per attempt, and had a 153 quarterback rating. He went down to 7.6 yards per attempt the next year, and then he was up to 8.0 this year, but his quarterback rating was down to 144.3 and his completion percentage was 64.6. And when you consider how bad Notre Dame's schedule was this year, it makes those numbers even less impressive. I think as the as the quarterbacks gain more experience, you see Notre Dame going back to the the heavy depth of plays and responsibilities that's on a quarterback's shoulders where Early on, when when a redshirt freshman takes over, they understandably take less pressure off of him. Brian Kelly talked about you know not having ever golfs and drive the bus, things like that. And to me, they they have to find a happy medium with these quarterbacks. Which, as you study teams like Oklahoma and and uh, and Clemson and and even Alabama to a degree, and you say, boy, they're just they're not asking their quarterbacks to do a million things. They make it real simple form early and then they only put more on their plate that they can handle. And I don't think Notre Dame has done a good job of that. And that's been true of throughout this past 10 years. It's not a Tommy Reese criticism or Chip Long criticism or Mike Dunbrock criticism. It's a, it's a Brian Kelly criticism. John Rich says Dylan Gibbons is leaving with a Notre Dame degree in hand. There may be others who have as well the, that supports your position. that The value proposition recruits that degree first. Absolutely. And look, Jack Lamb. Still on campus in Notre Dame, even though he's transferring. Micah Jones, still on campus in Notre Dame. Uh, he was actually around the team a lot this spring, uh, from my understanding. So uh, there's definitely Jordan Jen Keith, waited till he got his degree. DJ Morgan transferred, waited till he got his degree. There's a lot of, I think, I think Jameer Smith is also graduating in May and he'll transfer to App State. So to your point, John, there's a lot of these kids that transfer. Jordan Johnson is one and Kendall Rahman are rarities at Notre Dame. In that they don't have their degree. And if you look at the players that are transferring, so Jafar Armstrong, I believe, will have a degree. Micah Jones will have a degree. Colin Grunhard has a degree. Dylan Gibbons will have a degree. Um, I think Ovi Ogofa will have a degree. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I think he will. He was in the same class as Jack Lamb. He's also an early enrollee with Micah Jones and Jack Lamb. They were all early enrollees. They all are graduating in May. Jack Lamb is going to leave with a degree. Isaiah Rutherford will not. The majority of the kids leaving Notre Dame as transfers have degrees, and that's what you want ultimately. And exactly right, John. It it supports the the idea that Notre Dame sells things differently, which is why they don't have as many kids transfer. Okay. Jason says Rocco and Fisher need to be locked in the weight room with Bayless and Quinn until the first game. Absolutely, absolutely right. Okay. Audrey says, so do you think that Coach Kelly should have – Uh, should have made have more hands-off approach to the offense then if so then what job does the head coach provide other than a figurehead and facilitator okay so yes i do believe and and that is that is a very very good question big gem says those are excellent questions this is a very good question so here's some things that a head coach should do number one i'm not against brian kelly being involved in the offense i'm against brian kelly Not being involved in the offense all the time, if he's going to be involved in the offense. Okay. So here's what I mean by that I'm someone who seven, eight years ago advocated for Brian Kelly calling the plays. I've advocated for Brian Kelly taking the program back to his roots when Cincinnati was an innovative offense and an explosive offense and Grand Valley was scoring 50 points a game with him running the offense. Jeff Quinn was his coordinator. It was Brian Kelly's offense. However, the problem is that Brian Kelly is not around all the time when it comes to game planning, breaking down film, studying the opponent, doing all those things that guys like Urban Meyer always did. When Urban Meyer, who had always had a say in the offense and a say in the defense and was responsible for overseeing that things were implemented the way that he wanted them to, it was still you're hiring coaches to carry out your vision. You're laying out the vision, and then you oversee it. But if you're going to be criticizing, if you're going to be making suggestions to the quarterback or to the co- to coordinators or whatever, or making calls, then I need to know that you're in the, you're in the film room studying just as much as the coordinators are. And that's not happening. That's just a fact. That's not happening. OK, and so that's why I don't think Brian Kelly should have his hands involved in the offense as much. Brian Kelly used to be very heavily involved in the defense as well. Do you remember how often he would go yell at Brian Van Gorder or talk to Brian Van Gorder or talk to Bob Diaco or get, get on Bob Diaco? You're not really seeing that the last few years because he's just let these defensive coaches coach. He sets the direction. He's always there. He's always coaching kids up. He's always relying on their experience. His office should always be open. It's should be a situation where if Tommy Reese says, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what to do here. Let me go talk to coach, explain the situation. And Brian Kelly can help give him guidance and, and do all those type of things. Brian Kelly also sets what the principles and the philosophy are going to be from a strength conditioning program. He's going to say, Hey, look, here's what my expectations are and I'm hiring you to carry it out. Right. It's just why you hire position coaches. Otherwise he'd coach quarterbacks and offensive line and he'd coach receivers and all those other type of things. So when I say hands off, that doesn't mean he's not involved. It's, it's what I said from the very beginning. When I said, I wrote an article back in February, actually, we did a podcast back in February, Audrey, where I said they, that, he needs to give the offense over to Tommy Reese. But before we said that, we said he needs to set what this is, what the temp, what the expectation is. We're gonna be explosive, we're gonna be multiple, we're gonna be aggressive, we're going we're gonna do this, we're gonna run the ball, we're gonna take shots, we're gonna run RPOs. This is who I want you to be. Now go do it. That's what head coaches do. It's not just I'm going to hire you to run the offense. I don't really care what you're going to run, whatever, whatever you think is good. I'm just going to go, you know, eat some Cheetos and watch three's company. All right. And you just let me know if you need anything. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not just a figurehead or a CEO. It's I'm setting the agenda. And then you have to be accountable on a daily basis to making sure that you're holding those coaches to that standard. Are you putting into work? What's your game plan like? What's the practice plan? And then he's the kind of guy that puts all of it together and make sure everybody's going on the same page. He's also someone that to me needs to be more involved in the recruiting operation. So, again, a head coach being, as you said, a figurehead, that is not at all what I'm saying. And not running the offense day to day doesn't just make him a figurehead that's just sitting in the office eating Cheetos. It's, I'm telling you what my expectation is. Okay. It's like with any business. Okay. I hire you to do a job. I'm not going to be looking over your shoulder every second telling you what to do. Otherwise, I'd do it myself. I expect you to do the job, but you're gonna you're gonna be accountable to me. You're gonna make sure that I'm keeping and an, I'm gonna stay on you on the progress of your. So if I say, "Hey, by August first, Audrey, I need this project done. I need it done to the standard. Here's the specs that I need. Here's the here's the budget that you have to work with." Okay, and then I'm not gonna go on a vacation and come back on July 31st and say, "Okay, where's everything at?" No, we're gonna be involved in this together. I'm laying out what I expect and then you're going to do it but then I'm going to make sure that I'm holding you accountable to doing it. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what a head coach does. Uh and and, and we've seen a lot of those coaches be that way. Uh, Urban Meyer is not really that way. He it was always very involved in the offense. But he was also someone that hired coaches to do the job, but he was there to hold them accountable to it and to set the agenda, the tone, the tempo, the practice plans. You know, he would be the one to decide. You know what? I, you know, a head coach needs to be able to sit back and say, I, you know, last three practices, I don't like our energy. I don't like that. We're making a lot of mental mistakes. I don't like this. And then he's got to be the one that figures out what are we going to do tomorrow to do this? I've had a head coach before that would would kind of play mind games with coaches. And this is something I learned from him as a coach. And he just kind of, you know, he, he taught me. And what we took from it was there's just going to be days where there's nothing they can do right. Nothing they can do that's right, and it's by choice. You're not going to let them because you're just going to be on them, and it's got to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, you're upset. And then there's other days. He said, "Hey, you know what, fellas? We rode them pretty hard the last three days. Today is today is a today's an execution day. Today is praising them. We're going to be all over them, loving on them. Great job! Super excited. And when they do the things we've been asking them to do the last three days, we're going to love all over them for them. Those are the kind of things that the head coach sets that agenda." And and he's the one that makes those type of bigger picture decisions. And he's he's not a figurehead when he's doing that. A Facilitator, sure, I, you know, depending on how you use that. But I hope that answers your question, Audrey. And and if it doesn't, and you want to follow up, please ask it. Because so far, you've been on fire with some really really good questions. D Rock, just hit the the like button. Did you go? Did you go Irish fans? It takes two to three seconds. Hit it now, my man. I agree. All right, so Audrey said that Miles said Dell helped him develop as a receiver and a man and said that he was one of the best receiver coaches he's ever had and doesn't get enough credit. Okay, what other receiver coaches has he had? He had Mike Denbrock for a year, right? I'm sorry, with all due respect, Mike Denbrock has a much Denbrock has a much longer track record of developing receivers than Dell Alexander does at Notre Dame. But what's he supposed to say? You know, he's getting asked about it by a Notre Dame guy. No, he's a terrible coach. I mean, come on, let's use some common sense here. You can say whatever you want to say. But the fact of the matter is, I've been doing this a long time. I'm watching what's going on at Notre Dame. I'm watching what's going on other places. I watch how the Notre Dame players play the game. I watch how other players play the game. And I'm telling you, Notre Dame's receivers are not being coached well. You don't have to believe me if you don't want. And and I don't really care what Miles Boykin says. I think he kind of has to say that kind of thing. And I respect him for doing it. Just like Jordan Johnson in his decision to transfer says, I thank Coach Kelly and thank everybody. Well, if everyone is so awesome and so wonderful, why are you leaving? He's doing the respectful thing and the right thing, but also w- w- how does he know any different? I mean, come on. He had that, that that's all he knows. So I don't put a lot into that, but I do appreciate you sharing. Okay. So, okay. But then you had Claypool talking about learning three, three moves off the line and which look, Miles is a very smart, respectful young man. And I'm sure that him and coach Alexander had a great relationship and I've never banged on coach Alexander for, you know, not being a good guy. I've said quite the opposite. So I I can understand why players would respect them. But what I'm telling you is consistently year after year, we're not seeing the talent being developed the way that it needs to be. Uh, I'm just telling you. And, you know, I mean, we can agree to disagree and that's great. And I appreciate you asking the questions, but there's a reason I'm harping on this and I don't like it because I advocated for coach Alexander to be hired meaning I supported it. Not that Brian Kelly cared, but as far as like, you know, on my work, on my product and my site, I've always said that I thought it was a good hire. He just needs to step up and do the job, which is why I've also said not to fire him. Number one, I don't do that. But number two, I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it's, they need to figure out why he's not coaching here the way he has in the past and get it fixed. Okay. Jacob Dunn, were the O-line struggles in the spring game due to a drop-off in talent among this group. I don't think it's so much a drop-off in talent as it's a drop-off in, in experience. And, and also, spring game, and, and Vince talked about this, you didn't have your projected starting five together. They were kind of split on two different teams, and your best offensive lineman didn't play. So that's why I'm just not overly concerned about what happened in the spring game. If we're hearing these same concerns halfway through spring-fall practice, then I'll be more concerned. But look, it's it's a bunch of young players that have never played before or played very little, playing beside people that they've played very little with. Andrew Christophe, for example, okay, he's a junior, right? He played tackle at Notre Dame. He's learning a new position. And Blake uh, Rocco Spindler's a, a first year, first semester player. So is Blake Fisher. You know Quinn Carroll's now just a year, you know, little over a year removed from year and a half removed from his knee injury. So there's a lot of guys learning to play together and learning new positions. And I think that's why you're seeing some of that. But I, I don't think it's a talent drop-off. But look, two talented players, two players of equal talent, one's a fifth-year senior, one's a red shirt freshman. If they're of equal talent, the redshirt senior is going to look better. The fifth-year senior is going to look better because he has the experience to go with the talent. And that's what last year's offensive line did. I don't think it's necessarily that, that there's more physical talent It's just the experience is going to allow that talent to to be on display more consistently, if that makes sense. Okay. All right. John A1, if Notre Dame starts three freshmen on the O-line, Fisher, Spindler, Baker, being a redshirt freshman, one, do you still favor Notre Dame over everyone on the schedule? Yes. Uh, And two, will the line be a top 10 10 to 25 caliber by November? Uh, It should be. I mean, look, number one, do I favor Notre Dame over everyone on the schedule? Yes, I do, because Blake Fisher was a top 50 recruit. Rocco Spindler was a top 100 recruit, and Tosh Baker was a top 100 recruit. Tosh Baker is now a second-year player. I think that then you have to say, okay, we have a young line, so we have to do things schematically to protect that line, which Tommy Reese talked about a couple weeks ago. And and you say, okay, well, yeah, they're, they're replacing those guys, but every team on the schedule has those issues. USC just lost a guy that got drafted higher than anybody else that Notre Dame had. On the offensive line, Uh, North Carolina, who Notre Dame plays, lost 2,000-yard running backs and a 1,000-yard receiver, the number two receiver, and their best defensive player. Everybody has players they're trying to replace right now. And if those three guys are playing because they're the best players, then that tells me they're very talented. And they're going to make some rookie mistakes, but they're still very talented. And I'd be hard-pressed to go through the schedule and find a defense that I could say, yep, that front seven has more talent than Notre Dame's front four. Or front five. just i I'd have a hard time believing that. Plus, I wasn't expecting the offense to look great right now. Will the line be top 10 to 25 by November? I have no idea, but it needs to be. And if it's not, that's a coaching problem. Plain and simple, that's a coaching problem. All righty. Here we go. John A1 with Gibbons departing. Does the line have the depth to endure an injury for two to three games in any spot? Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, this is a, this is a good question, John. And so let's pull this up. I'm going to pull the depth chart back up again, or the uh, roster back up again. Okay. So let's pull this up and let's look through it. This is a very, very good question. So this is what you have. This does not include the incoming freshman Joe Alt and Pat Coogan, who I don't expect to be part of this conversation. Okay. So this just involves the the scholarship players. So let's look at it this way. Okay. So you lose, you lose Dylan Gibbons. All right. You have you have Josh Lugg. So let's say the starting lineup is Josh Lugg at right tackle, Jarrett Patterson at right guard, Zeke Carell at center, Rocco Spindler at left guard, and Blake Fisher at left tackle. You've got Michael Carmody who could play both tackle spots. You've got Tosh Baker that can play both tackle spots. You have Jarrett Patterson who could move out to tackle if he needed to as well. So that's three guys right there that could play tackle if you needed them to, if there's an injury. If you lose a guy to guard, it's even easier because let's just say Rocco sprains an ankle in week two and he's going to be down a couple weeks. You have Andrew Kristofik. You have Quinn Carroll. Both can do that. You could have a situation where they could move Josh Lugg inside the guard and and put Tosh at right tackle if it was going to be a longer-term injury. I don't think you would do that for two or three games, which is what your question asked about, John. But let's just say hypothetically that Rocco goes down for a long-term injury and your next best guy is clearly Tosh Baker. You could then move you know, either Blake Fisher or or, or Josh Lug inside the guard and and just rework your line that way. So I think Notre Dame has talent, but it's not just about numbers, John. It's one thing to have. No, I didn't even mention John Dirksen, who's another guy that could, could find himself playing. You know Josh Lug was a top 150 recruit. Jarrett Patterson's Notre Dame's best lineman. Zeke Carell was a top recruit. Andrew Christoffel was a top recruit. Ken Carroll was a top recruit. Tosh Baker was a top recruit. Michael Carmody was a top recruit. Caleb Johnson was a four-star player. So it's not just numbers, but it's quality numbers. Now it's just up to the Notre Dame coaches to build those guys up and coach them up and get them ready to play. But I definitely think the depth is good. And that's why I say the depth is fine. Now what they can't afford is like another transfer of someone that maybe like, uh, I don't even want to get an example because someone's going to run to another YouTube channel and say that we're saying so-and-so is going to transfer. But if another guy that is in the two deep transfers and then they have an injury that's long-term, then you could get into a a, a tricky spot, but they'd have to have a lot go wrong for them to get in a situation where depth becomes really problematic in my opinion. Jacob Dunn says a 2022 offensive line of Fisher, Patterson, Carell, Spindler, and Baker could be scary good. I agree with that. Uh, Sergio Green says, I'm having a hard time seeing people think Tosh is ready after the blue gold game. Um, two things about that. I don't, I don't, I'm not, and I don't think anyone else is saying he's ready right now. But I think you're there are things you could see from that game that you say there's talent there to work with. But uh, number one, number two, it's a spring game. It's his first spring. That's the first spring he's been a part of. I, I don't care that he struggled. I I care that he looks at the struggles and gets better. And I think there's some technical problems he needs to work on. He still needs to get a lot stronger. But I, I'm not saying that I think he's ready right now. I don't think Blake Fisher's ready right now. If, if Blake Fisher had to go play a game on Saturday against a real opponent, I'd be a little concerned. It's about getting him ready to play by September 5th. And I think there's certainly some things with Tosh Baker that you can work on and improve on to get him ready by that time. There's talent there, and that's what you see. I never expected them to be ready to go right now. Uh, Sean Terry follows up with his earlier question. When asked about O-line development, what I meant was that Givens leaving now is potentially a bigger problem because we lack the strength of depth that we might have had if he stands were still here. I mean, I, you, you could maybe make a case that in, in 2021 Notre Dame or 2020 Notre Dame might have got like a third or fourth lineman I mean, I think Notre Dame might have Pete Skaronski if Harry Heistan was here. I think that's a legitimate thing. That's more of a recruiting thing than it is a development thing. And yeah, I don't think Jeff Quinn's done as good of a job coaching as Harry Heastan. So I think there's some merit to what you're saying there, Sean. I would say, kind of what I said earlier is let's just see, let's see how Coach Quinn does in the fall, because I I think to to ask a line, a group of players to re- replace five starters. It going against the defense that they're facing every day and that we saw in the blue gold game expect them to look like world beaters by the 15 practice 15th practice is an unfair expectation if i wanted to to say you know i thought he was a bad hire and and i didn't like the hire and and i'm looking for a reason to kind of bang on him to support my 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 previous notions of he's not a good coach then i say yeah let's bang on him and say he's doing a bad job and all that but i just think that'd be really unfair because the expectations for where they should be after 15 practices is, is a unit that's got some talent but still struggling. I never expect them to look like world beaters by the end of the spring. And I think that's where I say, like, if we're going to be fair, let's see what this line looks like in September. Because there's still over 25 practices left between now and then, plus a whole summer workout schedule. We're going to coach these kids up and they're going to take the whoopings they took in the spring, are going to then help them to, to carry that on and, and get better in the fall so you could be right I'm not necessarily saying that you're wrong Sean it's just uh, for me if I'm going to be fair and objective I have to give coach Quinn an opportunity to take this young group into the fall and see what he can get out of them if we get to the end of the year and they're 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 still struggling then yeah so that's a that's a problem you didn't do enough to develop Quinn Carroll in the past you didn't do enough to develop uh, Andrew Christoffick or Zeke Carell in the past and that's on you as a coach But I want to give him a chance to develop those guys first before I bang on them for not developing them because I did not expect them to be developed by the 15th practice of the spring. John A1, Tosh could be ready by fall. He's been in the spot for 15 practices, two months. He can get better. Not the most likely thing, but it could. I I mean, I wouldn't say it's not most likely. Look, y'all. This is his first spring. Okay. He's still a freshman in college. He's in his second semester of college. He was about 265 pounds, and he reported, he's going to be okay. I did not expect him to look like a world beater by the end of the spring. Let's see what he does in the fall. You'd be surprised how many times young players go from their first spring, and then they use that, go to the summer, go to the fall, and you see them make huge strides. I'm just telling you. Remember when Deshaun Kaiser was in his first spring, and he played terrible in the blue goal game? And of all these Notre Dame fans saying this kid's no good, he can't play, he needs a transfer, he's worse than Montgomery Van Gorder, and then he had to take over in the third game of the year. He played really flipping good, right? So let's just pump the brakes on making too many sweeping conclusions about uh, about a kid in his first spring, especially when the expectation shouldn't have been high to begin with. For now, let's see where it is in the fall. If we get to the fall and he's still struggling, then we can we can we can have that conversation. Um, so here we go. And then C asked kind of the same question. What would your ideal starting lineup be? In my opinion, Patterson has to be a tackle because it fits him best. Um, I also don't get the hesitancy to put Blake at guard. I think, I think, I agree with your premise. I think ta- Patterson would be better at tackle. I think the hesitancy to put Blake at guard is because how good he's looked at tackle. I mean, I think if anything, the way that Blake looked at tackle and again, I, this is coming from someone who's always thought I could be an elite. I think he's a good tackle. I think he'd be an elite guard. That's what I said about him. I was pleasantly surprised how good he looked at tackle. Athletically, change of direction, instincts, all that. If anything, I'd say put him at right tackle and let Jarrett play left tackle or vice versa and then move Lug to guard. I, I would do that right now before moving Blake to guard with just how good he looked. Um, you know, there's some other guys that have to kind of to step up and – um and really really get to that point to to say yeah you have to move him inside i don't think any other tackles have played well enough to force that issue of moving him inside and that's what it needs to be okay thank you for the compliments d rock uh we'll always continue to try to do that otherwise you just have to look at this the whole time and that could be very um very disconcerting for how long these videos go um Audrey says, what do you think is holding Coach Kelly back from either being more involved like Urban or taking a step back and allowing his coaches to do the job he hired him for? Again, I I wouldn't necessarily say I want him to take a step back. I've never advocated for him taking a step back. I would just say, allow your coaches to do the job. And then I've always advocated for he's the one that has to hold people accountable. You can't hold people accountable if you're uh, taking a step back. Please understand what I'm saying. This is not a situation where you hand it over to the coaches and then you leave. You hand over the coaches and then you're there. You're watching this group, you're watching that group. You're saying, like, man, our our play uh at cornerback has not been good in the last three weeks. So let me let me go down there with Coach Mick Mickens and work on them. And then work on them there. Those are the things that you need to see. And, and you need to have a coach that can do that. That is the big, big part of it. So I'm gonna wrap up here because I got another interview I have to do at 230. Uh, and Audrey says, "Do you think Fisher could be a dominant? I think Blake Fisher could be a top ten NFL draft pick, a guard. But he was so good, um, he was so good at tackle this spring that I, I'm let, I'm I'm more reluctant to move him now than I would have before the spring. I think he was that good. Okay, last couple questions. Apart from the changes that Reese seems to be making, what would be the first two or three things you would want to change to achieve greater success? Uh I think recruiting, continue to do what you're recruiting. Brian Kelly being more involved in recruiting. I think those are some things that, that I would like to see a lot more of, and, and we'll get into some of that stuff this offseason. Okay. Audrey says, say if we had a line like Patterson, Fisher, Corell, Spindler, Lug Baker, I'd, I'd be okay with that. Yes, they need an edit feature. All right, last couple of questions. Uh, Sean, I've been loving your show. The announcement of Northern football is much clearer and more in-depth than any other outlet I know. Of. I appreciate that very, very, very much. Robert says, Brian, which game on the schedule do you consider a trap game this year? (sighs) Boy, let me pull up the schedule again just so I can see see the the actual makeup of the schedule because there's a couple games on there that I look at. So trap games for me are teams that you don't expect to lose. I think Purdue is a trap game for me potentially Uh, at Virginia Tech a week after playing Cincinnati before the bye week is a game that scares me a little bit. And then in November, November 13th at Virginia, that's a game that concerns me a little bit as well. If Notre Dame's worn out, tired, those are the three games that Notre Dame should win those games. But, you know, that could be like that Purdue version of Ohio State in 2018 or Iowa in 2017 or Syracuse and Clemson or, you know, when Ole Miss did that to Alabama, those are the games that they get to. Billy Johnson says, I think the O-line should be healthy. It should be strength by the middle of the year. I agree with you. Uh, Jonathan, thank you for the kind words. Um Octavio, if Freeman becomes a head coach, what's the earliest thing that can happen? I think after 2022, I think if, if BK says, you know what? I think BK, like any any competitor, you just hit that point in your career, you're just like, I- I'm done. I can't put into it what, I've, what I need to put into it like Bob Stoops did, and, and you walk away. That's why I think a lot of coaching retires are just kind of sudden like that. And I think something like that could happen in the next couple of years. And Audrey says, smash the like button for the algorithm. Appreciate y'all very, very much. Everybody, thanks for the great show. This was a lot of fun. Um, d- listening to your guy, D-Rock. Hit, the, hit like, subscribe, press the notification bell, and comment in the chats. Those are other things that help us out a lot. So everybody, thank you so much for being with me today. We'll be back tomorrow, Friday, 1 o'clock Eastern, Friday, free for all. events will be there with me. We'll answer all your questions. We'll talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. You don't have to listen to me rant at the beginning like I did today. You just get to dive right into the questions that you want to talk about. So, Everybody have a phenomenal rest of your day, and I'll talk to you again very, very soon.